0: Howdy folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael Novak, what is going on?
1: Jacob McCandless. It is fall break at the Novak home. Oh. The kids are home all week long. The prisoners are running the asylum. The prisoners are basically running the asylum.
0: I've taken to referring to my uh, two very young children as domestic terrorists. <laughs> Because it feels like a hostage situation yep. sometimes.
2: Wait, there, there's a fall break now? There is a
1: week-long fall a break. A week-long? Great hearts, forest heights, and the most anxious people in the room are now controlling the scenario at the Novak. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: When I was in college, we had a fall break, and it was a private school, so not a lot of the state schools did. But it was just like a Monday and Tuesday off. Yeah. It
1: wasn't a whole week. Rachel might say I'm the most anxious person in the room, by the way. I'm not sure, but I tend to think my kids are. (laughs) Anyway.
2: I've never heard of a fall break up until about two minutes ago. Yeah. Wow.
1: Never had it either growing up, but. Interesting. Yep. The teachers are still in session. Rachel went and had parent-teacher conferences today, which I was not able to be at. Um, and so they're still
0: engaged and I'm in, sure you were really work. looking for time in your schedule. Well, to...
1: <laughs> well, she came back and they were so encouraging. She said, I, I wish you could have been there to oh, hear. That's good. Mm. And So that was positive.
0: Great. Yeah. Very good. Well, gentlemen, question of the week this week, I think this will be fun. It's kind of interesting. What is your favorite smell <laughs> in the whole world? Nice. I will tell you mine. Wow. I've it's a few. little bit kind of nebulous, but mm. if you think. The first real cold snap of the year, like not the little cool down we've had earlier this week, but like the first time maybe late November into December when it drops down uh, at night, like good into like the lower 40s. And it gets good and chilly Mm -hmm. overnight, South Texas chilly. And you walk outside the next morning, it's still kind of dark and you... (sighs) You can smell, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know what that smell is. It's just like crisp. It's Mm. even though there's, even though nothing has been burning, somehow you smell the remnants of a campfire, even though there's not (laughs) been one within miles. Mm. But there is a, there is a winter, cold winter day smell that is intoxicating. Yeah. Mm. I like it. It is good. Who's next?
1: I've got. I've got three in mind. I love oh, what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'll be quick though. Um, first, fresh cut grass. Mm, classic. I love fresh yeah. cut grass. Yeah. If there was a candle, fresh cut grass, I'd buy it. Uh, sunscreen. I love the smell of sunscreen. Interesting. Interesting. It reminds me of the beach. Yeah. And I okay. love the beach. Nostalgia. So, yeah. It, you know, smells normally take you somewhere. And yeah. So sunscreen does that. And then, uh, if I had to uh, pick a natural scent, it would be rosemary. If oh. you ever see a, a rosemary plant, you just run your hands oh, yeah. across it and then sniff your fingers. Ooh, I love hmm. that smell. Rosemary or lavender, one of the two. You know, yeah.
0: both beautiful. That, that's cute. Uh, <laughs> gee, what do you think?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you got the seal of approval. <laughs> my lavender lotion on yeah. that before
1: I go to bed. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, that's cute. <laughs> I do not wear um, lavender lotion, just for the record.
2: I'd probably say... The smell in the air right before a thunderstorm is about to hit. Mm. Um, I went to school in a place where during the summer we'd have after afternoon thunderstorms, almost like clockwork. Mm. And you, you could always just smell it coming. And it's always, you can even smell it here. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever just sat on the porch and just smelled the air when the thunderstorm is about to roll in. I I love it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not too not too dissimilar to maybe to it's, the the smell of like fall, winter. It's a
0: different smell, but it's in that same sort of yeah. the smell of air in certain situations. Right, right. Yeah. Can I give you a smell that's gonna shock everyone that I really, really enjoy? If oh you boy. say gasoline, I'm I'm <laughs> no. right. Over
1: you. Okay. I don't smoke cigarettes, but if it's a cold night, oh, I love the smell of cigarette smoke. That is disgusting. Like not really not me smoking, but if someone's smoking nearby, I really enjoy that smell. Is that strange? That's no, strange. That is, that's interesting. There's just something about it that I enjoy. I really, I really like it. Listen, as it takes a, me back to my college days, I think, yeah. standing outside the library <laughs> with I'll
0: all add, the smokers. I'll add
2: one more on here, which is probably more thrown to you, to you, Michael. And I'm surprised it didn't make your list. Um, I am not a coffee drinker, but I'll be darn if I don't enjoy the smell. Oh yeah, of oh, yeah freshly brewed coffee. Mm. like you marry that with some bacon that on that's being made that's a that's a pretty solid morning scent smells that's like god's be- love <laughs> smells like god's love yes right. <laughs> that's a solid scent right there yeah Oh
0: man, there's. I'm thinking of so many smells. Yes, no specific smells now that I really like.
1: We could have a whole episode on our (laughs) favorite smells.
0: (laughs) Let me tell you about this and what it reminds me of and the memories that it takes me back to. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening to TGC, man. (laughs) Let's let's
0: pray. pray. This episode of Smells of the Week. Um, Okay. All right. Hard gear shift here. Uh, Michael folks that have been with us for the last couple of weeks know we've been doing a hot topic series, um, hitting on issues that can be touchy or might, uh, evoke some passions, uh, be difficult to talk about, um, with in certain contexts or things like that. And we've really been doing it in a very conversational way, mm-hmm. um, really just kind of Two guys kind of hashing it out. Almost feels like a dorm room kind of BS session. You know, it kind of has that feel. And just to show folks that uh, we're really just thinking out loud here and kind of showing folks our our process and hopefully um, demonstrating that these conversations can happen um, in a reasonable level. We've had some disagreement around some things. And uh, all in all, it's been a pretty fun series. Coming to an episode this week, this has kind of been the hot topic du jour for the last Maybe ten years or so. It's certainly one that that becomes uh, something of a shibboleth for for some Christians and a lot of non Christians too. And that's the issue of homosexuality and the Bible. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? How should churches and Christians uh, approach the issue of homosexuality, either in uh, because they know gay folks or because? Um, it's an issue that's come up in their church and how the church should kind of formalize positions to it. Mm. This one could go in a lot of directions. Why don't you get us started?
1: Yeah, you're right. Certainly in the past 15 years, it's been a hot topic, not just in the church, but in the culture. I remember when President Obama was in office at the beginning of his administration, uh, same-sex marriage was not legalized anywhere in the United States, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I think it was his first term, he mentioned that he was not in favor right. of same-sex marriage. By his second term, um, obviously, that uh, had completely switched and shifted. Um, and then you had the Supreme Court uh, come down with a decision uh, in early 2010s, you know, teens, um, that uh, basically legalized uh, homosexual marriage across our nation. And, you know, it kind of put the pressure on the church in ways that it hadn't felt in the past uh, to come down on um, the issue in ways that they haven't had to speak to it before. On top of that, this issue divides denominations. Um, You've got some denominations in our country, the PCUSA, for instance, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, which is a more liberal Presbyterian uh, branch um, with over a million members, I believe. Uh, that will ordain uh, homosexual clergy. Um, and so um, you've got more conservative uh, denominations, specifically in the Presbyterian uh, Church, Our denomination for one, the PCA, um, which does not ordain um, homosexual uh, clergy. And um, in fact, uh, you know, a homosexual living, uh, a lifestyle of unrepentant, Um, Homosexuality uh, would not be welcome into membership in the church, even uh, in our specific denomination. Uh, And so we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Um, but definitely uh, a hot topic and, um, it's a hot topic in our denomination now for a number of different reasons, but I think more than anything, because society is, uh, is pressing in on us and forcing us to lay our cards on the table more strongly than we ever have had to before, because generally speaking, 15 years ago, I mean, society was kind of in lockstep in many ways with the morality of the church in Mm -hmm. this regard. Um, But now that we're getting further apart from one another, um, the differences uh, are more stark. And I mean, in some ways, the church and specifically the conservative church like the PCA and other sister denominations that are conservative like us, you know, look like dinosaurs in some ways uh, to a secular world looking in. And um, we're behind the times, so to speak. Um, We're not, you know, progressive. We're not with the culture. And uh, in many ways, what we'll talk about tonight is we feel like we're holding true uh, to the objective biblical truths that we see in the scriptures um, and uh, the pathway for human flourishing that God lays out, not just for his church, but for humanity in general. And so we can talk about that um, as we as we move on. But it definitely is a hot topic.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think probably the best place to start would be understanding. kind of the same place where we started last week. Let's talk about um, creation and how men and women are created um, in a compatible way to one another and God's design for sexual intimacy. And why don't we take it from there? We can talk about some specific passages where homosexuality is directly addressed. And we can see maybe the biblical sexual ethic clearly defined and then prohibitions against homosexuality on the other
1: hand. And, you know, we can talk about homosexuality, and that's generally what we'll be focused on tonight, I guess. But more generally, we can, you know, frame this as biblical sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, What does that look like? Because even heterosexuals still experience the effects of the fall with regard to their sexuality. And so we don't want to just, you know, hone in on homosexuality, although that seems to be what we're going to be talking about tonight because it is the hot topic. But don't want to let heterosexual sin, um, also, just kind of fall by the wayside right. here. Um, but let's let's start with creation. I love what you said, creation. Um, how how's all this begin? Because I mean, you've got to root our sexuality in creation, and if it wasn't rooted in creation, then you might have the argument that it could blow with the cultural winds. Yeah. Um, but because uh, the Lord established our sexuality before the fall in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before the effects of sin took place, we have some objective foundation to ground our sexuality. And the place that you'd start, just like you'd start many places, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So you've got two distinctive uh, genders there. And then he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so right off the bat, you've got male, female, and even physiologically. Um, You know, those two genders, those two sexes are needed in order to accomplish this cultural mandate that God gives his creatures to be fruitful, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. I mean, it almost goes without saying, almost too simplistic, that if you didn't have male and female, there's no way that you could be fruitful and multiply and mm-hmm. fill the earth. There would be no procreation. Um, And so you see in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginnings um, of uh, human sexuality at play. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you see that Adam is given Eve. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, you read, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. And so here you've got the first marriage uh, between a man and a woman. Um, man uh, was uh, wed to woman so that they could have uh, not just emotional and relational intimacy, but also sexual intimacy. And so they could get about uh, multiplying and filling the earth and being fruitful. And so this all happened before the fall in chapter three. And so we go back to say this is how humanity flourishes. Um, with uh, relationship, sexual relationship between a man and a woman, um, between a husband and a wife in a covenantal relationship that we know as marriage where they make promises to one another. And so that is the foundation for uh, human sexuality um, that we see in the scriptures. Now, of course, you know, Genesis chapter 3 comes along, sin enters the world, and we'll talk about this, but um, the greater the gift the more Satan wants to attack and destroy that good gift and malign it and vandalize it and turn it against God's people. And you could make the argument that sex is one of the best gifts that God has given to humanity, um, not only in terms of relational connection between husband and wife, um, but also uh, for pleasure between husband and wife, uh, for procreation uh, uh, and filling the world with his image. And so because it's so powerful, uh, it should not surprise us that Satan comes along and tries to twist this good gift mm-hmm. in really significant, profound ways, which we see not just in homosexual relationships, but also in the way that our heterosexual, heterosexual um heterosexual tendencies can also uh be uh be prone to uh to sin and, and dysfunction as
0: well. Mm-hmm. So after a man and woman are created in this way after the fall happens, not only are not only is the, the just general relationship between husband and wife um, it struggles after the fall. we talked about that in other contexts as well. Like there's, there's relational heartache there. Um, But also the sexual intimacy is broken in some way as well. And as you read Genesis, you you really start to see the fruits of this um, later on when you read about Lamech having multiple wives. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of comment, not a lot, I don't read that much, but some commentators that I've read would point to this being sort of the, f- the first or at least a novel um, introduction of polygamy in the biblical record, because Lamech is sort of... Um, he's written about in Genesis as sort of a renowned um, tyrant kind of figure, very sinful and um, hedonistic. And it mentions him specifically having multiple wives, um, taking multiple wives. So this just goes to sh- just gets directly to your point is even the heterosexual uh, attraction between man and woman is affected by the fall. So yep. human sexuality Um, Whether we want to talk about homosexuality as um, a consequence of the the broken sexuality that happens as as a result of the fall. But even man-towards-woman attraction is uh, Mm -hmm. not as it should be. Sure. Yep.
1: In so many different ways, and especially in our culture. I mean, um, you've got divorce. Mm -hmm. um, You've got infidelity. um, You've got pornography. You've got um, unnatural relations, not just between man and man and woman and woman, but, you know, you've got folks engaged in our culture in, um, you know, uh, child pornography. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that's evil and wicked. That's sinful. Um, and so there's so many different ways that we can talk about how our sexuality is broken. Um, and it doesn't take long. I mean, like you already mentioned, Lamech is, you know, the first ten chapters of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 19, and you see the, the, um, the whole uh, scenario with Saddam and Gomorrah. And uh, I'll just read this. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, it says, The two angels entered Saddam in the evening as Lot was sitting in Saddam's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. Now, that would have been normal. in in a place of peace and prosperity and shalom, you should have been able to spend the night in the town square. But Lot knew that this was not a place where you could do that Mm. in safety. (laughs) And so he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. And here's what Lot knew that they did not. While they could not sleep in the town square, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Saddam, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Um, And so uh, you've got this this idea of just uh, gross depravity um, in Leviticus chapter 19 which actually brings upon the Lord's judgment and destruction mm-hmm. of the entire city. Um, that was the sin of this particular city, it seems like. I mean, obviously, there were probably lots of other sins that, you know, aren't mentioned in the scriptures, but that is the one um, where uh, it's very explicit there in Genesis chapter 19. Um, and so, you know, uh, the effects of the fall, very, very evident, Um in the uh and the narrative portions of the scriptures in the Old Testament, not just with uh polygamy but also homosexuality um bestiality mm-hmm. um these are things that
0: the Old Testament mentions um often yeah in Leviticus eighteen this is probably one of the more well known um, sections of scripture dealing with this issue the prohibition against homosexuality is is pretty clear Did you do you have that yeah, right there in front. Of you. I
1: do. Yeah. yeah, Leviticus 18 verse 22 mentions it. I'll read the verse before and after just for a little bit of context. 21, Leviticus 18 verse 21 says, "You are not to sacrifice any of your children in the fire to Malek. Do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. You are not to have sexual intercourse with any animal, defiling yourself with it." A woman is not to present herself to an animal to mate with. It is a perversion. Um, And then again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, um, this is what uh, Moses writes. Um, I'll start in verse 12. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They have acted perversely. Their death is their own fault. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is depraved. Both he and they must be burned, so there will be no depravity among you. And it goes on to talk about other sexual sins Mm -hmm. that uh, the Israelites might be prone to engage in. Um, and these would have been normal activities for the pagan nations that were around, uh, and the Lord gives these laws and these um, uh, these 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 guardrails to His people so that they might live according to their design that we see in Genesis chapters one and two, so that they might flourish, um, so that they might be a light to the nation, showing them the way that the Lord. Um, has created them to live and to engage and to enjoy sexual relationship uh, as a man and a woman in a married um, in a married uh, union, and so um, very explicitly there you see Leviticus chapter eighteen and twenty um, pinpoint homosexuality
0: as well as other sexual sin. Mm-hmm. You know, s- sometimes someone might say that. Leviticus also prohibits wear, things like wearing a garment that's made of more than one type of fabric. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing a cheap T-shirt that's a cotton-poly blend. Um, there's clearly some some areas of Leviticus that we simply don't follow today. Yep. How should we understand this prohibition uh, in light of those certain certain things? Why are we making are we making an exception for the homosexuality issue by listening to Leviticus? Yeah. On, on this issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on something here, uh, you know, the secular task really is to present the Bible as irrelevant and homosexuality as natural and okay. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason Leviticus uh is the this generation's book of scripture that makes all the books of the Bible irrelevant and untrustworthy. Yeah. So, if you can poke one hole in Leviticus, uh, you know the argument goes that all the other commands that we find in Leviticus are also obsolete, um, and so the argument goes like this, like you just mentioned, Leviticus says homosexual practice is wrong, also says as you mentioned, uh, cloth of different thread materials is wrong, and so we 're all wearing poly cotton uh, blend every day almost, um, and therefore leviticus can 't be trusted. The problem with that. Um, is not with Leviticus, but how one reads Leviticus in conjunction with the rest of Scripture. And so in the Old Testament, as we've mentioned before, you have got different types of laws. You've got ceremonial laws, you've got civil laws that were there for the nation-state of Israel, and you've got moral laws. And anytime you see those laws at play in the Old Testament, one of the things you can ask is, what does the New Testament say about these laws? And so with the ceremonial law, for instance, the sacrificial system, well, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, very clearly puts the sacrificial system to bed, uh, saying that we have a once and for all sacrifice in Christ Jesus who died upon the cross for our sins. And so we don't need the sacrificial system anymore. And so anytime you read about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, you should be thinking about Jesus and how he's done it all for us, and we don't need to be slaughtering animals anymore for atonement. When it comes to civil laws, um, you know Israel was a nation state, and uh, it was a theocracy, and so they had laws that governed their uh, their their civil um, society. Uh, and I mean, you even see like public health laws. Uh, um, where, you know, folks that had mold in their homes or that were sick with certain diseases had to stay inside for, you know, public health reasons, which is an interesting conversation to have today Uh, with COVID. We won't go there, though. Um, But the original public health uh, laws can be found in the Old Testament. But anytime you see and are wondering, is this a civil law? Well, if you don't see it mentioned in the New Testament, um, after you know, the nation-state of Israel had become extinct, then you can pretty much su- uh, you know, conclude that you know, that was a civil law if you only read about it in the Old Testament and the New Testament never mentions it. Now, when it comes to the moral law, which is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, but you also get pepperings of the moral law throughout um, you know, the rest of the Old Testament laws, some 650-plus you know, laws that we read about in the Old Testament, The way you can know it's a moral law that still stands today, it almost feels a little bit too easy uh, to say this, is that it will be mentioned in the New Testament. And so, you know, a lot of folks will say that homosexuality is mentioned in Leviticus. You know, it's no longer relevant for us today. It's something that's outdated. You know, we wear cloth of, you know, blended clothes of blended cloth now. And so, uh, we should be able to engage in in sexuality in different ways. The problem with that is Paul never mentions uh you know the type of clothes that we wear mm-hmm. in terms of blended blended uh cloth, but he does very much mention uh sexuality in almost every one of his letters and so you can conclude that since Paul mentions it that it is still in effect for God's church today. Um, still an effect for how we're supposed to live and and more than that it's once again rooted in creation so you would expect Paul to talk about it mm-hmm. um, and you see uh, Paul talk about it in a number of different places Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6 first Timothy 1 um, among other places and and we can go there and read those passages if if it would be helpful for sure um,
0: but this is where um, Paul picks back up yeah uh, I, I wanna say say what you said about um kind of a, a rule of you know something is a moral law when it's repeated or referenced again in the, the New Testament. And to kind of abstract that just slightly, I think we could say that when you read something in the old testament that is getting to something, is getting to something that transcends time and cultures, then it is A moral law. Yeah. So this is going to be things like uh, the 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. Like all 10 of those are uh, good and in effect and they transcend, you know, time periods and cultures. And there's probably other examples we could, we could point to too. I think they're all kind of probably summarized by the 10 commandment there, but a proper understanding of God's design for human sexuality. Is something which transcends periods of time in history and transcends mm-hmm. culture. It's always God. There is God has one standard for rightly oriented sexual desire and intimacy. Yes, which is one man and one woman in committed marriage. Yep.
1: And if you want to put it in a very positive uh, paradigm, you'd say this is for the flourishing of mm-hmm. humanity. And if we work against God's intention for our life, then we're working against the created order. Mm -hmm. And anytime you work against the grain of the universe, you can expect to get splinters, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, and so if we're going to work according to our design, we're working according to uh, our design with regard to sexuality, which is not a popular thing to say, obviously, in this day and age and specifically in our culture. I mean, in other cultures, this is not, you know— This is this isn't scandalous. This this is this is just the norm. Uh, But in our 21st century American culture, you are very much um, pushing against the cultural narrative. If you say that homosexuality is not leading to the flourishing
0: of humanity, Mm -hmm. it's interesting too because when Paul writes these things that you're about to read, he is in some way pushing against that culture as well. Yeah. We often think that our culture is unique in its sexualization. Mm -hmm. And maybe in some ways it is, at least in terms of the way that technology has amplified things. But the ancient or um, near-ancient Greco-Roman world was hyper-sexualized. Totally. It was incredibly sexualized. I think what's where where there's a slight difference. And I think where our culture has become is a little bit odd just in history and how it views this issue specifically is that in the Greco Roman world, homosexuality was viewed as something that you did and not something that you were. Yeah. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second, but that's just a a thought that occurred to my mind. Mm -hmm. But returning to this point that, um, When Paul is talking about this issue, and we'll read a couple of verses here in a second, he's he's preaching against activity that would have been seen as um, at least permissible, if not Mm -hmm. expected and condoned. Yeah, and it's so important what you just
1: said. I mean, even in twenty first or you know nineteenth. 20th century America, homosexuality was not necessarily something that you were. It was something that you did. Mm -hmm. Um, And it hasn't been till the past probably 50 years where, you know, generally in our culture, um, it has become an identity. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I'm not saying it, you know, it wasn't an identity before, but more than ever, it feels like that's the case now. I am, this is who I am, and I'm going to identify by my sexuality and make it the primary marker uh, to identify myself, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But for sure, Paul talks about sexuality so much because it was condoned. Um, there was illicit a, a sexuality in the Greco-Roman world, as you mentioned And here's the thing, Paul talks about it in the New Testament, so we'd say that it's a part of God's moral law, which is still in effect today for the church and also for human flourishing. Now, if that's the case... That means that the homosexual camp, for lack of a better way to say it, and I'm not using that, you know, word pejoratively or that phrase pejoratively, but the homosexual camp has to do something with the passages we're about to read. Yeah. Romans chapter 1, first Corinthians chapter 6, first Timothy chapter 1. And what they tend to do, the argument that they tend to make, and I'll give you the argument before I read the passages, is that they will say that Paul is specifically speaking about the type of homosexuality found in the Greco-Roman world that happens between um, uh, a superior and a subordinate, a master and a slave, um, somebody that is in charge and somebody that is underneath them. And so it's not consensual homosexual relationships that Paul has in mind. It's dominating Uh, Mm -hmm. homosexual relationships exploitative Exploitative is a better word thank you um homosexual relationships that paul has in mind the problem with that is and i'm not an expert here um, but i've read enough uh to hear others that are experts talk about the fact that this argument really was repopularized um recently um, but before that, it was it kind of came onto the scene in the 1980s mm. with liberal, progressive biblical scholars making this argument. Before the 1980s, um, folks that are experts here would say you would be hard pressed to find the argument that they're making prior to 1980. Mm. Uh, almost all academic scholarship with regard to the Bible and first century Greco-Roman world would say they were very much aware of consensual homosexual relationships and so that's really where this whole argument hinges Um, was paul aware of consensual homosexual relationships or was he only aware of this exploitative homosexual type of relationship? And that really does color how you read Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, because if he's talking about exploitative relationships, then of course he's saying those are wrong, but consensual homosexual relationships are not. Mm. But if you make the argument, which folks have made through the centuries that Paul was very much aware of consensual homosexual relationships, then you read Romans chapter one, First Corinthians chapter six, and First Timothy uh, chapter one um, about him speaking to those consensual relationships. Yeah. Um, and so, does that make sense? It makes all the
0: difference. Yes, it, it definitely makes sense. I think what strikes me is that um, if the if the sin is sexual exploitation, yep, and not homosexuality specifically, you but he he refers to it with language about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. If the sin is really the exploitation, then you would expect him to refer to perhaps marital exploitation or exploitation uh, in a heterosexual manner. And that's completely, I don't think that's ever mentioned.
1: Not just that, but he could have used different words in Romans chapter one. He could have used words for men and boys. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that he does in the original language. Um, I did not check that before I got here tonight, but I think that's one of the arguments that Paul could have used different language if he was talking about exploitative homosexual relationships,
0: but he does not. Yeah, and and I'm going to start to get to where I don't know what I'm talking about, but um, (laughs) the The kind of exploitative relationship between a superior and and a subordinate here um, would most likely have occurred between... Men, uh, in, in if we're talking about a homosexual relationship, um, but he also specifically calls out same-sex relationships among women too. And I could be totally wrong; someone can correct me. But I don't, I don't expect that the kind of exploitative kind of thing that liberal scholars might be pointing to was prevalent among among women. I just that doesn't seem like something that would have. Yeah, again I'm speculating but seems like a common sense
1: argument. I'm yeah. not, I'm not sure either. I would be speculating there too, but I, I could go with you there and it
0: would be a hypothesis that would be worth checking out for sure. You would find less of the power dynamic in that culture between a woman who's in some superior position and another woman —and an inferior. I I don't yeah, know. Sure.
1: Well, let's uh let's let's look at what Paul says yeah. in Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18. He says, "For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteous righteousness, suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes—that is, His eternal power and divine nature—have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made." As a rep- Zolt, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over and their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Let me go on just a little bit further. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations relations with women And were inflamed with their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And so the whole idea that, you know, God has given up mankind uh, to pursue their depraved desires. And one of the places where that leads, among lots of other things is distorted sexuality where women are engaged with women and men are engaged with men uh, in activities uh, that are completely against the created order. And you see that here in Romans chapter 1. Very consensual is the argument. Um, you know, Paul uses men and men. He doesn't use the language of men and boys. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, but, uh,
0: I, think, I, I think it says uh, passions for one another so there's sure. a there's a reciprocal nature there yep.
1: and so let's keep going i know it sounds like we are i mean right now we're just laying out what the bible says yep. about sexual relationships specifically homosexuality we'll talk a, a little bit about you know hope and redemption and how the church is called to engage um with uh with those um, that might uh, be struggling uh, in this area and also with those who are just flat out um, engaged in the, in the homosexual lifestyle without any sort of um, repentant heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute, but for for now, let's just lay out where the
0: Bible talks about this. So, first, I think if you're going to 1 Corinthians next, that that yep. passage has a, a pretty strong message of hope there in verse 11.
1: Okay, well, let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh nine, ten, and eleven, it says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, and so here you've got Paul listing a number of different sins and uh, depravity um, that we experience due to the fall. And it's interesting here that he lumps in, you know, males who have sex with males, along with greedy people mm-hmm. and drunkards and verbally abusive people and swindlers. And so, you know, it's not that. You know, normally Paul is calling out homosexuality and forgetting all the other sins that folks are prone to engage in. I mean, you could make the argument that Paul and Jesus talk a lot more about love of money, Mm -hmm. a lot more about gossip, a lot more about gluttony than they do uh, about you know, homosexuality and sexual sin in and of itself. I mean, there's a lot more real estate, so to speak, given to gossip in Mm -hmm. the New Testament than there is homosexuality and sexual sin. That's not to say that we should not talk about homosexuality and sexual sin. It might be that we should talk more about gossip and greed and our love of comfort And instead of sweeping those sins under the rug and highlighting and promoting and really focusing our attention on, you know, the homosexuals out there, um, we should maybe turn, you know, the mirror back in on ourselves a little more Mm -hmm. than we're used to or comfortable with and talk about some of these other sins that, that Paul and Jesus tend to talk about a lot more. Yeah. Um, and so that's just, you know, that's, um, That's just an encouragement. I mean, it it does seem like this sin um, gets a lot of our attention um, in the 21st century American church. And you can make the argument rightfully so because our culture is pushing against this particular area of humanity more than it is in other areas. And so, obviously, it's a hot-button issue. Yeah. But we do not talk enough about, you know, the sins that we experience as God's church— Um, And it's always dangerous if we're talking about them and not us, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about those people out there and not talking about those that are sitting in the pews, because God wants to shape and form us, Mm -hmm. those who claim to follow Jesus. We are the ones who have been justified, and you can't expect sanctification from folks that have not received justification. Mm -hmm. And so if you have not claimed to follow Jesus, if you have not been washed, as Paul says here, by his blood— uh, and been given the power of his spirit, you shouldn't expect somebody uh, to want to follow God's law and his ways for their life. But we have, mm-hmm. and so we can talk about ourselves very personally. Um, and maybe we should you know, just pause a little bit uh, every once in a while before we talk about those people out there and spend a little bit more time talking about us and what we're struggling with. I, I think that everyone would agree with that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just just an encouragement there. Um,
0: what I think is interesting about the passage you just read is Paul provides this list of sin, including men who practice homosexuality, and in verse 11, talking to a Christian church, he says, and such were some of you, mm-hmm. but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think that is a tremendous message of hope for folks um, that might be struggling with this issue, <clears throat> or for Christians who struggle with with same-sex attraction, like there have been other folks in your shoes for a very long time, some mm-hmm. of the first churches, you know. And Paul is saying that even though this thing used to define you, yep. you're no longer defined by that. Yep. You've been washed in cleansed from this thing. In the same way that all of us who uh, maybe don't struggle with this particular issue but might be too stingy with our money or um, lustful in a heterosexual way mm-hmm. or um, consumed by our anger, yep. those things don't define us. What defines us is the fact that we are, have been washed mm-hmm. and been justified by Jesus Christ.
1: So important and so good. And also, if we have been washed and justified by Jesus, we are all called to mortify the sins Mm. that we find in our own hearts. And so for you— That's a $2 word. Why
0: don't you— That's right.
1: uh, To to put sin to death. Yeah. Um, To kill sin is what mortification means. And so as a follower of Jesus, we're all called to do that. And it's going to be hard. And depending on your proclivity and uh, whatever sin you are most inclined towards, that's where you're going to feel the most uh, pressure, um, so to speak. And so for me, it might be love of money. For you, it might be uh, greed. For another person, it might be anger. For another person, it might be homosexual desires. And if you're claiming to follow Jesus and you believe, as we've mentioned, that you know sexualities are created... Uh, a creational kind of order that God has given it to us for our flourishing as humans and society, and you believe that it's a sin. I mean, that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Is homosexuality a sin? Um, Is disordered sexual desire, heterosexual disordered sexual desire, a sin? And if you say that it is, then that's something that needs to be put to death, not celebrated. Mm Mm-hmm. It's something that we need to look at and say, that no longer defines me as a follower of Jesus. Instead, I'm defined by being in Christ. And, you know, it's going to be hard. And I know Christian believers that struggle with same-sex attraction, um, that are not attracted to the opposite sex and never will be. And whether or not that's nurture or nature, who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean— there's evidence, I guess, that you could go to that would lead both ways, but at the end of the day, we live in a fallen world and we have fallen hearts, and it's probably a little bit of both. It doesn't really matter if it's nurture yeah. or nature. At the end of the day, um, we're struggling with those uh, with those desires, and um, and the Christians that I know that struggle with those desires are making. Extravagant, extraordinary sacrifices to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. They're saying, I'm not going to act on the desire that I have because I believe Jesus is better. I believe that he's given me the power to mortify this sin. And so I'm going to be celibate mm-hmm. in my sexuality because to engage the way that I want to engage would be against God's word and his intention for my life. And I think that those people need a lot of support from Christ church, and they need to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Just like anybody that wants to fight sin and to follow God's ways needs to be welcomed and encouraged and supported in the church. And so um, I think that's an important conversation to have. Uh, if somebody is same-sex attracted, um, if somebody finds themselves um, – uh, You know, wanting to engage uh, in homosexual activity, that doesn't necessarily prohibit them from being a part of God's family. Uh, The question is do they recognize it as sin? Do we recognize our sin as sin and want to turn from it and turn to Christ? Are we living repentant lifestyles? Because we all struggle with sin. And the thing that that would keep you from being a member of the church is looking at sin and saying, I don't think there's a problem with that, and I love it. Right, right. And so if somebody came and said, I'm greedy, and I don't really care, I'm going to continue to live in my greed, we'd say, you can't be a member of the church because Mm -hmm. you don't recognize your desperate need in this area. Just like somebody that struggles with homosexuality, if they recognize their desperate need for Jesus, we would say, come on, brother or Mm sister— Um, you know, Jesus loves you and we're going to try to help you this side of glory, uh, to live for him and to fight against your sinful inclinations just like we do. Right.
0: Um, Here's what I'll say on on that issue. You brought up the nature versus nurture thing. And I, I, uh, I don't want to spend too much time being in violent agreement with you, but, um. Violent agreement? Violent agreement. That's good. Um, but I I just want to add this one point, you know. The world uh the sort secular uh folks secular arguments come in and say that we'll try to make the case that homosexuality is um natural or naturally occurring. Um, there's certain study studies that uh, might lend themselves to that way. they might find other examples in the animal kingdom of homosexuality all to support the point that it is a naturally occurring desire as though that would prove the point that it is a morally good thing. The fact that something is a naturally occurring desire, even if you have no control over it, that does not make something good. So I think, Christian, I think Christians for a long time have not wanted to seed ground on this nature versus nurture thing, but I don't see any, like I'll concede that argument all day, even though I don't think it, it's 100% true, but I'll concede that argument all day it doesn't matter if something is natural to you, that does not make it good. there's so many things that are natural to me as a human being mm-hmm. that we would never say are morally acceptable. But for some reason the world wants to take this this one particular issue and say just because someone desires it it's therefore good. Yep. So I think we have to stand firm on the the biblical design here and say no. There is a standard of of good when it comes to to properly oriented sexuality and uh, w- following your desires simply because your desires are it is not it. Yep. I also want to uh, be in agreement with you on the issue of um, same sex attracted Christians. I think uh, you're absolutely right. Folks who have recognized that as sin and are. Uh, living a life of of celibacy, basically recognizing that they'll never have an intimate relationship uh, because they recognize that God's plan for for human sexuality is is better than their fallen desires. That's uh, like we can kind of sit here and talk about that, but for a person sitting in that position, that is a monumental struggle, I think. And so, mm-hmm. definitely agree with you on that point that the ch- the church should come up alongside those folks. <clears throat> and support them in, in their own quest to mortify sin, um, even as we're all undergoing that for our own certain things. But I do think mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a particularly tough position to be in.
1: Yeah. You know, the other thing I'll mention, piggybacking off what you're saying, is a lot of times with um, Christians that I know that are struggling with homosexual desires, same-sex attraction, Um, The thing that I do get a little discouraged by is the lack of hope for that specific sin issue. And I realize, I mean, this is not something that I personally struggle with. So I'm speaking a little bit um, out of step here in some ways, maybe, um, because I've never experienced it. But for any sin, I think you can make the objective argument that the gospel offers hope for victory, uh, for growth, for progressive sanctification, for um tastes of flourishing, and I'm not saying that you know if if you don't ever move beyond same sex attraction and get married to a man or a woman of the opposite sex, then you know you're living a life of defeat That's not what I'm saying, but I would like us to talk a little bit more about the potential mm-hmm. for gospel victory over sin. And a lot of times when I hear same-sex attracted Christians talk, there's just a lack of any sort of gospel hope in their vocabulary and the way they articulate their sin pattern that, you know, doesn't bother me. I don't want to say that because it sounds like, you know, it's pejorative, but i just like to hear more of, sure. you know, is the gospel powerful enough, and we, I think we believe that it is, to help us move past even our sexual uh, depraved desires, mm-hmm. and it seems like we tend to promote our sexual depraved desires higher and more powerful than our other depraved desires. Yeah. And I don't know if the Bible has that category. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one thing. I I just I'd love to hear us talk more about gospel hope in all of our sin. Um, but the last place I guess I you know we probably should talk about the last place that that uh, Paul talks about this First Timothy chapter one verses eight to eleven. And uh, I know we we need to wrap up here. Um, he says, But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murders. For the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for wh- whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. And so, once again, Paul just listing <laughs> sins there, um, throwing homosexuality and disordered sexual relationship into the pot mm-hmm. you know, of depraved desires. Um, and so, it really does hinge on the fact— do you believe that disordered sexual desires are sinful or not? And if you believe they're sinful, uh and you believe that the Lord has uh something um different intended for your life, then it make then you've got to say I'm I'm looking to confess and repent and live a life of confession and repentance in that specific
0: area. Yeah. Why do you think this particular issue more than any other sin has become such a uh hot topic uh not only between the culture and the church but a sort of shibboleth for certain denominations or or just it 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 in some ways it becomes the marker of like are you conservative or are you liberal? More than any other things, which is it's and it's very oddly specific. So why do you think everyone, it seems like, is focused on this issue very specifically? Well, I think you touched on it before we
1: you know got on air, so to speak, I guess um where you said you know it's just this is this is low hanging fruit mm-hmm. it's easy to see um and so uh, it's very easy to take sides on this specific issue, and I think there's some aspect of it too that I mentioned earlier. It's very easy to talk about them out there, yeah and uh and not us in here. And any time you spend more time talking about them that aren't in the room. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I heard somebody say this today. Um, the easiest way to raise money for a ministry is to have an enemy. Mm. You know? I mean, it's it's it happens not just in ministry, but everywhere. Yeah. It happens in politics. You want to run for office? What do you need? Well, you don't need a great platform where you're going to basically put forth a positive agenda. Yeah, you gotta you need to list. have somebody that you're fighting. Yeah. And this is just an easy fight for the Christian church. Um, and so, you know, we're fearful, and this is an easy way to direct our fear mm-hmm. to a specific sin. Um, and, and I think that we might be losing some of the compassion, um, some of the um, gospel welcome, Um, and some of the gospel hope that we might be able to offer to folks, uh, struggling with sexual, um, uh, disordered sexual desires because we're so focused on, you know, forming this enemy and trying to fight against it.
0: Yeah, I think too, this sin more than others is, um, like you said, it's easy to, to see people kind of wear it on their sleeve, I guess you might say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was we, we were in the green room before this. I was joking, saying I could be a raging cocaine addict, and you would have no idea. But um, a little bit more difficult to uh, conceal a ongoing homosexual relationship, I guess. Yeah. And so it's more than any other sin pattern. This is a this is something that defines a person. Mm-hmm. At least that's how our culture has kind of forced it um and so i think that's where it's become kind of like a if you're the culture might say if you as the church are teaching against homosexuality then you're te- then you are against me because the the homosexual person hears our teaching against it and and hears that as something that is specifically against them because they identify they understand themselves under the context of being gay, yep. and I think that's where it's so it's it makes it so much more. I don't want to say it makes it uh, like worse than other sins because I don't necessarily think that's how the Bible would understand it. But it makes it a little bit different than other sins because it's it's not necessarily a practice that you can learn to stop doing or mm-hmm. something although I guess maybe you could but it's it's something that people view as an identity issue yes. and a very very personal issue but at the same time that's the exact kind of thing that the gospel is designed to um like preach against mm-hmm. right or or to to provide some hope in sure. light of like this thing used to define you like that 1 Corinthians passage mm-hmm. as were some of you This thing used to be who you were, but it's no longer who you are because you are in Christ now. Yep. What defines you is Jesus. Yep. Not the sin pattern that you used to be in. Yep. And I I actually think that is why
1: this topic has become uh, more focused in the church is because it's become, like you're mentioning, an identity that people wear. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not wearing my identity as an angry Christian, right. or my identity as a Christian that drinks too much, uh-huh. or a Christian that you know you fill in the blank.
0: I would also never ask to join the church and say I am angry. I like my anger. I'm going to continue yes. to be an angry Christian. And we just talked about it, um, but this this is
1: this is an identity marker that folks will will bring to bear. And if you push against it, you're pushing against. Them as a person or their identity, and that almost feels like it is sacred ground that you're not allowed to touch, but right. like you mentioned, the gospel offers a, us a different identity. We are in Christ, and so you know we might have been formally drunkards or gluttons or gossips or sexually immoral, but now we're in christ that's right, and I think that that's uh that might be a good place to end I and think also so. To look forward to the day, you know, that's painted for us in Revelation 20 and 21 where we won't struggle with sin any longer, whether it no matter you pick your sin, um, sin will be no more. And so that's where the Lord is leading us and we can at least fight uh, to experience a little bit more of that freedom truly, but not yet fully until Jesus comes and makes all things new.
0: That's right. I'm glad you said to end it there because I never really know where to end things. I just kind (laughs) of I kind of lean over to G's computer and see. I was like, oh, we've been going kind of long, so let's just wrap it up. So I do think that's a good place to end. End with a message of hope. Uh, I think that's a good spot. Folks, hope you've enjoyed this edition of TGC Midweek. If you've got an idea for a future hot topic that you'd like us to cover, or if you've got a question of the week that you'd like us to tackle on a future episode of this podcast, please send that into questions at trinitygracesa.org. We'd love to feature you on a future episode of this show. Until next time, we'll see you later.